0: This here, I think that's going to go, we'll see. Uh, by way of announcements, we are going to be having a uh, Bible Jeopardy uh, tonight uh, after services, and so everybody's uh, invited to stick around and to be a part of, uh, of that. Um, you've probably heard the, the, I don't know whether it's an urban legend or it really happened, the, the story of the, the teacher who put a jar in front of him. And he took a couple of three big rocks and he put the big rocks in and he asked the class, he said, is the jar full? And they said, yeah, it's, the jar's full. And so then he took a, a handful of, uh, of pebbles and he put the pebbles in there, filled it up, and he said, is the jar full? And the class said, yes. And he took a handful of sand and he put the sand in there And then he said, is the jar full? And the class said, yes. And then he took a cup of water and he poured it in there. Is the jar full? And people who use that story, what they do is they pull away from the story and they say, the moral of the lesson is you got to do the most important things first. And then after you've put in your big rocks, then you put in your smaller rocks and smaller rocks and smaller rocks and that sort of thing. And that's supposed to help us to make good decisions and make sure we get The most important things done. There was an ongoing discussion that happened in Judaism about what they were to do. There were these 613 laws that they had. And they would have these debates about which ones are the big rocks and which ones are the pebbles and which ones the sand and which ones the water. And you'd find all these discussions going back and forth in terms of what holds all of the law together. So in Jesus' ministry, that question is asked of Him. In Matthew chapter 22, verse 36. Teacher, which command in the law is the greatest? Now, I want to stop there. We are looking for that law which is the greatest... And if Jesus is going to answer the question, which I think we find that he will, Jesus will tell us something, which means that laws have weight. Jesus is saying, yes, there are some laws that are like the big rocks, and there are some laws that are like the sand, some that are weightier than others. The word greatest is looking to say, does the tie go to the runner? Now, that's important for us because we don't always think that laws have issues of greatness and lessness, do we? We say, you know, you cross the line and you've crossed the line. But the question is, are there some lines that are more significant? Jesus seems to say there is because in verse 37, He said to him, "...you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind." We're going to stop there for now. Jesus has answered the gentleman's question. Jesus should be able to say, you know, case closed, I rest my case, and he sits down because he has given what was requested, this greatest law. Now, one of the things that we find is that this question is asked in a a context of contention. Uh, This is not a a legitimate, you know, asking the teacher something. This is a uh, there's more behind, and the reason is because Jesus has been introducing some new ideas in terms of reading Scripture. If you go back to Matthew 5, 17, there seems to be some miscommunication or mis- misunderstanding then about what Jesus is about. I think the misunderstanding may still be here, because in Matthew 5, 17, Jesus said, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. You could probably all count sermons where that was the whole point, right? Jesus abolished the law and the prophets. And yet Jesus is saying, I have not come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have come not to abolish, but to fulfill them. And so as Jesus is teaching, he'll teach them things about like anger. You've heard that it was said, but I tell you. And all of that, Jesus is trying to say, this is what the law really means and what the law is really about. And so people are scratching their heads and they're saying, well, he's doing something different with law. Than's been done before. Jesus will then say in Matthew seven twelve, "In everything, do to others as you would have them do for you." For this is the law and the prophets. Again, Jesus seems to be doing something different, and so the question is to get at the heart of the question: Jesus, what are you telling us that is different about the law? What is the greatest commandment? What is the one commandment that it encapsulates and it holds all these other commandments? And so Jesus goes with what would be a passage they knew very well, Deuteronomy 6, 5, uh, the Shema, about God. It was recited twice daily by all Jews. It was written on doorposts and on their phylacteries. And so Jesus says basically... At first, it sounds like he's saying, you've got it. I mean, you're saying it twice every day. You've got it, you know, all over the place, everywhere. And it seems like Jesus might just pat them on the back and say, just keep doing what you're doing. Good job there. Except it seems as though when Jesus is talking to the scribes and the Pharisees, specifically in Matthew, there's not an awful lot of attaboys when it comes to them and how they handle the law is there. Jesus, in fact, has criticisms about what they do with and how they handle the law. And so one of the things that Jesus is saying, he's saying, I'm doing something different with law, you're doing something wrong with it, and now I'm going to show you the right way to handle law. But so the problem is this concept of loving God, you would think would then be able to hold all of the law and prophets, right? So the issue and the problem is people can take that first commandment and still not properly honor and glorify God. Luke will tell the story, as he's following up on this, of a good Samaritan. And maybe if you are under the age of 11, you can help me retell this story. There was a man who was going on a journey between Jerusalem and Jericho, and what happened to him? Does anybody remember under the age of 11? What? Did I missay something? Oh, Caleb has sunk deeper into his seat. Parker. He was attacked and stripped by robbers. Okay, so he got attacked and stripped by robbers, and he was left, the text says, half dead. Now, again, if you're under the age of 11, how do you know when someone's half dead, not all the way dead i mean that's a hard thing uh we have a couple of doctors here maybe we could call the doctors and say i don't know if this guy is dead or only half dead please let me know but our bible verse tells us that there was a gentleman he was a priest and he was walking by and the text says specifically he walked by on the other side okay If somebody is half dead and you want to know if he's all the way dead and you're under 11, what do you think you might do to find out if he's all the way dead or only half dead? What do you think? See if he's breathing. Now, if I'm walking by on the other side, what's the likelihood I'm going to be able to tell whether you're dead or half dead? Not a very good chance. If I really want to know, I'm going to come close to you. question is, why if somebody, it looks like he might be dead, why wouldn't you go over there? Well, they had a law. And the law said that if somebody is dead and you touch them, you are now what? Does anyone know under the age of 11? Clean or unclean? You're unclean. Is that what you're going to say, Dusty? See, I knew you were going to say it. That's why I gave you the answer. You are now unclean. So if I love God and God says, don't go near unclean things or you're going to be unclean, what am I going to do? I'm not going to go near this guy. And so I'm going to go away on the other way. And I have now showed God that I love him because I followed his commandment and I stayed away from that which was unclean. So the problem is sometimes we can say we're loving God and in the very act of loving God, we do something that shows people we don't love them. And the funny thing is, God says, when you don't show people you love them, you don't show people that you love me. So they did what was right according to the law. They would not defile themselves, so they were correct. However, they did not love the person, so they were wrong. Well, how can you be wrong and correct at the same time? Following the Bible and fulfilling the Bible are different things. Paul has this phrase in 1 Corinthians 8, 1. He says, we know that uh, all of us possess knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. So it's possible that in my loving God, I might learn a lot of the Bible. And when I learn a lot of the Bible, I'm going to have a certain posture or stature to me now, right? I'm going to walk around and I'm going to look at other people and I'm going to let other people know that I'm better than them because I know the Bible better than them. And if there's a Bible question, I'm going to put my hand up and I'm going to be the first one to answer it. And I'm doing all of this, why? Because I love God. And Paul says, you know, the thing about knowledge is you can be right, and implement it in a wrong way, which ultimately doesn't make you right, it makes you wrong. We can fight and we can quarrel with all of these things. See, Jesus, I don't think, is just trying to um, overperform here. So Jesus has answered the man's question, and then in Matthew 22, verse 30. He says, This is the greatest and the first command. And then he says, And a second is like it. And I'm thinking, Well, I only asked you for one, and now you're going to give me two. But the question is, What does Jesus mean by second, and what does he mean by is like it? If it's like the story of the rocks, Jesus is saying loving God is like the big rocks. And then if you've got time and space afterwards, love other people because that's the second biggest priority. See, there's a guy named Richard Beck who says we can look at this text and ask, uh, are we talking about two love Christians or one love Christians? And I'm going to tell you what the difference between a 2 love Christian and a one love Christian. A 2 love Christian says that there are two kinds of love, one that is directed to God and one that is directed to others. And sometimes if I love God, God might call me to treat someone else in a way that I express hatred towards them, because loving God now means I have to do this or treat you in a certain way. So does God's love ever call us to love someone else? Less Can God's love ever call us to express hatred towards others? Did you know that sometimes when people are doing things, there will be Christians who will get out and who will pick it and say, God hates you. It's a rough translation of some of the signs you might see. And why are they doing that? Because they love God. And their love of God calls them to show displeasure. Is that a word? Yeah, it shouldn't be a word. Displeasure. Show, disp- yeah, show not pleasureness to others. So, a two love Christian, it would be like this your spouse gives you a shopping list. And it's the afternoon. And says, I'm cooking a roast tonight. So, at the grocery store, please get a roast. You start to head out the door, and your spouse says, oh, by the way, tomorrow night I'm making chicken. If you're able to, go ahead and grab some chicken while you're there. If, if we're talking about two loves, and you come home and you say, here's the roast, I forgot the chicken, they say, well, that's okay. The big thing I emphasized was, make sure you get the roast. Is God's love the same way where we say to God, we say, well, I learned to love you. I did a good job with that. I just time got really short, and I didn't get around to loving other people. Um, I hope God that that's OK. That's what a two-love Christian would say and would think. The other is one-love Christian, which is you cannot show love of God except by showing love to other people. These are not two different loves, but it is one love. The word that Matthew uses whenever he talks about the second is like it, like it being a word that is of its equivalent or of its equal weight. So, so Jesus is not saying there's a first command and a second command. He's saying, you're asking me for the one command, and the one command is really two commands. One and two, of equal weight. You cannot fulfill the first without fulfilling the second. He's not saying you prioritize one over the other. He is simply saying, if the one is of value, the other becomes of value too. So the illustration or the example here might be if Steve and Sally are considering getting married and Sally has a child from a previous relationship. But the problem is that Steve doesn't like Sally's child, and so he's not very nice to that child. He doesn't spend much attention to it. And Sally says, if you love me, you will do what? You're going to show love to my child. And Steve says, well, I do love you, but I just don't like that kid at all, and I don't want anything to do with that kid. And Sally is going to interpret that as what? That means, ultimately, you don't love me. And so that's what Jesus is doing when he introduces this second love, is not to say there is a lesser love, but the second love is, in fact, how we express our first love to God. That's why when you see a guy on the road and he looks like he's dead and he may just be half dead, if I love God, what am I going to do? I'm going to go and I'm going to show love to that person. And by showing love to that person, what am I proving? I love God. Because the two cannot be separated. Um, I, I think that Jesus is wanting to see these much like conjoined twins. And there's no surgery that takes them apart. That if one is true, the other simultaneously must be true. He's not saying, here's the first priority, and then second priority, if you have time left over, love other people. Because you love me, then you ought to simultaneously love others. This is expressed, I think, in uh, John 21, verse 15. We'll turn there for a moment, John 21, verse 15.